Good afternoon. Before I tell you my name, I just want to let you know that I read somewhere that the intelligence of a group is determined by how easy it is for them to pronounce a foreign name. My name is Ajit. God, a mensa crowd in here. Before I start, I want to thank Luann for our uh, talk this, uh, at this conference and for the committee for sanctioning it. Uh, thank you for the basket of fruit, uh, the uh, Remy Martin VSOP and the cigar with an especially good touch. See, we Alamont can work third step and have a glass of wine, can't we? Auntie. So I want to welcome the Alamont in the room. Hello. Now I want to welcome the people in AA in this room. Special welcome. Now, I do have an unusual name uh, for these parts, not for Bombay, India, which is uh, where I was born many, many years ago. Doesn't seem that well. Still look good for 49, don't I? But I have about 99 orders. Someone actually said, bless you, when I said my name. They thought I was sneezing. And I came to California through Detroit, Chicago, and I was asked to speak at a little meeting. By the way, I traveled 22,000 miles to get to Al-Anon, the end, so your 1,100 miles don't count. But I was in the wrong room, and I did not realize that people in California do not sound the letter J, it's Mission Viejo, or San Juan Capistrano, what have you. And I was in the wrong room, which is usually my wrong. I am in the wrong places at the right time. And I was looking for the right room, and a lady walked by me and said, are you a heat? And after she was asking me if I was in heat, I said, the bedroom eyes are a giveaway anytime. I love the women in California. And I found out she was mispronouncing. So here I am. I uh, had a wonderful time listening to this last night. Oh, what a ride. And then uh, this. And I told Tom and I saw him in the restroom and said, you know, you really should ought, ought to come to Alamon. I heard a lot of your Alamon in your story. He's talking about his kids and his grandkids and all the drunks and the druggies in his life. Gone. We'll save him a seat. After you have a dynamic speaker, Sheila, I've uh, shared the podium with her a few times. And tomorrow morning, know that don't mess her. She's asked all of them. It's just. It's, it's a pleasure being an Alamon speaker at an AA convention because you get to hear a lot of wonderful AA speakers and then you don't have to compare notes with them. Now, I'll keep it simple. I did what uh, Tom was saying and how it is today. And hopefully some of you will realize how sick I am and not practice your program the way I have. But I was born in Bombay, India in 1952 to a family where my grandmother actually went and prayed to be born to her son. And lo and behold, God's gift to at least my family showed up on the 11th of May, 1952. Had blonde hair, blue eyes. California sun really ruined this. Boy, golden. When I grew up in a family, I was treated rather well. I was treated special. And, and that's where I think my problem began. I'll tell you in a second what really my problem is. I can't recall as to when I came into Al-Anon. It was circa 1980. But I can tell you to the moment when I do AA. May 25, 1983, 802 p.m. University United Methodist Church on University and Color. The other problem I have, which stems from my childhood, is image management. I may feel like crap, but I gotta look good. And I am really concerned about what you think of me, even if you're not thinking about me. Because I think you're thinking about me. That's all I think about is what you're thinking about me. And you're especially gonna judge me by the conduct of people next to me around me, because they're birds of a feather fly together if he's just someone unelegant and he's gotta be a schmuck. So I gotta choose the right people around me. See, that's the sickness I come to with Al-Anon. And so alcoholism being a disease is really not important to me because it has no nexus with my situation. My qualifier is between my ears, not somewhere out there. But I did have quote and quarter qualifying. Anyway, I finished up with, uh, with school, not recognizing the fact that we did have the disease of alcoholism right in our very own home. We lost an uncle to this crazy disease. He 
time goes by, his wife literally stopped him, I mean, dropped him off and almost stopped Kara outside. So I'm out, he's not mine. But I realized that's geographic distancing, that's not detachment. She just wanted him out of the way. Anyway, I finished up, I graduated from, uh, I climbed up the proverbial mountain in my best Sunday loincloth. I've never worn a loincloth, don't look so amazed. Those are some of the myths I want to dispel. I've never worn a turban, no, I don't have, I don't sleep on a bed of nails. The spikes in my golf shoes are not on the inside. I do not have my women walk three feet behind me. I'd rather be checking their radios out. So I dispel all these stereotypical myths. Never won a turban. No, they did not ask me to take it off at the airport. None of that stuff. Anyway, I finished up. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, not being a Catholic. That's a... <laughs> and I climbed up the proverbial mountain. I said, oh, great guru, I seek serenity. And he said, go to Detroit, Michigan, and join Al-Anon. The bastard neglected to tell me I marry an alcoholic in the protest. So anyway, I leave the shores of Bombay. It's somewhere around May 1974. Well warned by family, they said, do not get involved. Canadians are okay. okay. <laughs> and I said, why not? And they said, oh, they drink and smoke in the open like men. Translation, discreet Indian women do it behind clothes. Now, I did, did not care if the American woman, but I love the fact that she drank. Because they say candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. And it made my progress in an evening extremely cost-effective and expedient. I loved it. I was like that Alan Alda character in MASH, my kind of woman, drunk. <laughs> Little did I know that I was on my path to seeking serenity and I had to cross these, you know, bridges to get there. And I used to go, I used to, uh, I finished up with college, and I was working in my graduate uh, thing, I finished that up, and um, I moved to the suburbs of Detroit, and I used to use that as a ploy to meet women, take them to downtown Detroit. Why? Because they, it was like an adventure. People thought they did not, never wanted to go to downtown Detroit because you could get mugged at any hour of the day. But I'd take them to Greek Town, Detroit. If you've ever been there, it's an extremely safe place. It's policed by the Greek Mafia. Cops don't show up. So you're very, very safe. But what made Greek Town fun is for 25 bucks, I'm dating myself back to the 70s, for 25 bucks you could get a four-course meal with a bottle of Rodita's wine. And Rodita's wine had this magic transforming an absolute stranger into the best of friends over the course of an And I loved it. And when I got married, and I said, you know what? I went out with so many, and so many, just a few. And I had so many relationships. The word maybe a week and a half to two months at the most was a relationship. And I said, I never married one of them because I, we Alamons carry a beam, laser beam, and I don't mess with her. Alcoholic, no, don't bother. She doesn't give you a reason for living. Move on, move on, move on. And I said, when I met you, you got the beam connected with mine, and that's why I married her an alcoholic. She said, nonsense. If you had married one of them, you would have driven them to drink too, like you did me. And I saw friends and family that was good. You never drank like that till she met you. She had to be grateful. She found AA. It's incredible, I tell you. And this happened with me, and I had to drag my students out for a couple of drinks after, after class. And here comes this woman who's working her way to the table. And my beam took off and her beam took off. And, and she tells me, and my ego lets me believe this, that I was the only person who happened to be a patron of this place that she'd ever gone out with. I don't know. I've never questioned her about anything. The reason I asked her out is this. This is image management. I was, and before you judge me, I used to be a terrible cad. I'm less of a cad now. I was seeing someone 
who did not fit the image that I wanted to do. But the boss of mine was having a party, and the woman I was seeing my image. So I had to look for the right image, and it came at the table, waiting at, waiting at my table. My beam took off, her beam took off, and I said, would you like to go to this party with me? And she said, yes. And so I took her out to dinner before the party, and I tell you, my God's a God of irony and a sense of humor that just is amazing. He was sending me here, she it was sending me signs that this is really your pastor said, you watch out, you're going to get what you've asked for. So I'm sitting and having dinner with this woman. Normally I listen to women with an open mind, in one ear, out the other, because I'm busy strategizing. With her, I was indulging in intellectual intercourse. I was actually listening to what she was saying. It was rather scary. It was totally not me. And I should have left her at the restaurant, got in my car, and driven away. But no, destiny was speaking its way to me. And I went to the party with her, who came in the form of George, who came up to me and said, you and Susan look so comfortable together. How long have you been going out? Six, seven years? I said, George, I met this woman last week. He said, oh, man, you look too good together. Actually, I left at the party, given or driven away. No, I was going to find serenity. And it came. Four months later, our relationship, there was a knock on the door. At 10 o'clock at night, the Wednesday evening, the reason I remember it so clearly, because I shared this story about three weeks ago. <laughs> and I opened up the door, and this woman standing with a lump on her shining arm with a caretaker, all personalities that Sybil and Roseanne would have fought over. I said, you will not move in with that woman. You will move in. Now, Hindu from Bombay, India, does not ask for a girl from Warren, Michigan, to move in with him. Now, it's not the scary part of watching her Catholic, God-fearing mother who disav- you know, just hated sinful living together type of thing, actually helping her daughter move in. Yeah. To watch the two of them coming in furniture is scary. I should have left both mother and daughter at my apartment. I was going to find serenity even if it killed me, which it almost did a couple of times. And it's funny, you know, the first year we lived together, odd things were going on. Now, you might say that perhaps I was in denial. I think you cannot get to denial unless you have some sense of awareness. I was clueless. I had no idea. You can't. For me, denial would progress. You know, I, you're totally clueless. You have no depth to your personality. You only exist in one dimension, you, that's thinking that everyone else is really concerned about you, so you're wary about what's going on, but you're so externally focused that there's no development to your personality within. So really, then you can sort of a sociopath. Retrospect, in retrospect, I recognize there was a bit of that in me. You were around me only to serve a certain purpose, which was to provide for whatever you provide for me. And if you did not, you ceased to exist. At least I didn't see you in that respect. So I didn't know how you felt. I didn't have any connection with your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, your wants, as long as I was so focused on me. And it was not to focus on inside, but I was more focused outside. And if that makes sense to you. So I had no idea what was going on with her. And she was complaining about headache. Occasionally, she slept a lot. She made strange life, crying and screaming. I had no idea what was going on. So I decided we'd get married. I'd figure her out. I love what Thomas said. They all sorted this thing out. We sorted the thing out. She suggested we get married because sinful living wasn't healthy. <laughs> so we did. And we moved into this little though in a town called Warren, Michigan. If you're from Warren, Michigan, be grateful. You're from Warren, Michigan. Wonderful GM town. And we had this little half bathroom that played a phenomenal role in alcoholism. The reason I say that, again, totally clueless. I go into this little half bathroom, I open up the cabinets, six or seven empty cans of beer would topple out. And I, like an idiot, would walk up to my wife and say, they're not even in the trash. I was more concerned they were not in the trash can. And she'd say, Aunt Bunny came and had a few drinks. And I said, never question the fact why Aunt Bunny would take six, a six-pack of beer to the bar. Was she eliminating the middle man? I don't know. 
And I still haven't figured this out. Maybe some woman of good standing will come and tell me how she did this. A friend of mine came over at home. I said, would you like a glass of wine? He said, sure. We had, it had a, it was a full bottle with a cork living around it, but it was empty. Do they sell syringes in some stores to, you know, like there's a store for pot smokers in areas they have a store like that for alcoholics to go buy syringes and really mess up the Alanon or to be. And I still had no idea that I could, just the way it is, because she drank uh, socially till one day we got into this room to visit some family. And that was a no-no. I wasn't going to take in that condition. So we drove back. I said, I can't have you meet me or fighting with me. Let's take you back. She said, take me back. And she rushes into the top bathroom. And I'm walking by. I see her trying to shut the door to the cabinet. And inside was what I perceived to be a 55-gallon drum of gallon wine. It was half a gallon jug, but it just sort of grew in size. We do, we men do have a strange tension, don't we? But this was really exaggerated. So, out of the blue, it's like time stood still, and a little voice came into my head and said, your wife's not God. And if God had materialized in human in human form and said, hey, we need one of you, because you're going to think her thoughts, you're going to feel her feelings, you're going to have conversations with her, she's going to respond, but she's not even going to be there. She's going to be like, in that regard, because everything that's going on is that she doesn't need to exist, and I say, God, you're all wrong. Because I'm totally individuated, that's not going to happen to me. And that's exactly what happened to you in a half year. A friend of mine puts a beautiful. If she was happy, I was elated. If she was angry, I was terribly confused. I was constantly wary as to what she was going to do. I started the isolation business. Don't want to be around my friends. Don't want my family coming over. Because I was ashamed of what was going on. She had nothing to do with me, but yet everything became this. So I proceeded to take the next step. And this is a deadly step if you happen to logic, which is a male problem. It's not logic. You women have foisted that on us to make us believe we have logic. But I think most of us are fairly illogical. Because look at what we do. Yeah, I mean, think about what men do. I mean, this world were run by women. I don't think we'd have what's going on in the world today. But we do. You know, some strange guy, idiot, hiding in the caves, telling people they should kill themselves in the name of God. I don't think women would do that. But we men think it's logical. So here I am thinking, my wife has a drinking problem. And I watched these Chick Shadow commercials. <laughs> you remember that? Where the wife checks over to her husband, she said, Darling, you have a drinking problem. He said, My dear, you're so right. And, and they go off to get treated. <laughs> so I walked up to my wife and said, Darling, I didn't say, Darling, I said, Susan, you have a drinking problem. She said, You're an idiot. I don't. That didn't sound like the commercial, you know, and I had no plan B. So this is plan B. If you're new to Al-Anon, if you're living within the active, uh, there's nothing active about her drinking. She was rather sedentary, you know, she sat on the couch and was very mean. Uh, I think the only activity I saw from her was in Chicago, uh, using a 10-speed and 9 inches of snow to get a bottle of booze. I was about as active as I've seen her drinking. But anyway, in the active phases, for lack of a better term, then you may want to do a few of these things, or you may not want to, depending upon how much time you have and what kind of life you have. So I, in my logic, thought that if I catch her in the act of drinking, and therefore she'll stop drinking. <clears throat> so I would sit on this couch, pretending to do the crossword. What's the five-letter word for boredom? Anui, E-N-N-U-I. Most of you are experiencing that right now. And I look at a blank, a blank teller. Who uses the word anui? But anyway, I'm putting this. And I, why am I doing this? Because I'm looking at a blank television set because it's carrying the reflection of what's going on in the kitchen. Lots of time on my hand, no life. And I see her pull her booze, and I go, aha, like I'm Archimedes who's just discovered the law of I didn't, yeah, 
that's what's the exclamation? That's what alcoholics do, at least the active ones. They drink. And then I'd watch her put her booze away and crawl upstairs to the bedroom with some semblance of dignity because she held her head high as she crawled by. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a bit. Yeah. I'd get up and I'd move the booze around, thinking that when she'll get up at 2 o'clock feet time, she'd struggle finding the booze. So I'd wake up with her at 2 o'clock feet time. Everyone gets up, which happened to be the two of us and her varied personalities or whatever she was hallucinating about the time. And she'd go downstairs. I'm pretending to be asleep, but wide awake, thinking, aha, now she knows. I didn't realize that alcoholics in good standing had their booze stashed in 16,000 places. Here I am moving it around like an idiot. And she's got it stashed about 6,000 places. To make a long story short, uh, she'd come upstairs, beat me up. I'd pretend to be asleep. And this went on day after day after day after day. What a miserable way to live. But it was fun. I could do, I could do the four-minute mile in 19 seconds, you know, up and down the stairs when she stepped out. I became rather kinky, feeling her clothes in the drawers to see if she was hiding a booze. Once I was arrested for molesting the vacuum cleaner. I mean, uh, uh, wondering she'd hidden. Why I was looking for booze, I had no idea. And this woman's reeking of it. They say, you know, you can spot the alcoholic from the behavior of the person next to them. We'd go out to dinner, and my friends would look at me and say, geez, what's your problem? I'd say, she's got mozzarella dripping down her chin. She's got pepperoni stuck to her eyelids. And you're asking me what my problem is. He said, oh, she's having fun. I knew she was. You are, alcoholics have wonderful t-shirts. As I drink, I get drunk, I pass out. No problem. For you, no problem. For this idiot, this woman passed out on the floor. She's got stuff coming out of her mouth, reeks of alcohol. Any three-year-old would say, sir, that woman is drunk. No, but I have to walk over her prostrate body to the trash can to critique her choice of alcohol. <laughs> oh my God, a bottle of wine that did not have a cork in it. Got a screw top. She didn't let it breathe. How gosh. Champagne from Kmart? I'd die. I was telling this to my sponsor, and I guess they sent sponsors to one-upmanship school. I said, Don, I was going through garbage cans. How terrible. It was like a course in garbology. He said, oh, that's nothing. I said, that's nothing. How could it be anything worse than that? He said, oh, man, I used to work in the army. In the middle of the night, I had to look at Jeep with a flashlight in my mouth so my hands would be free. That's why I could, that trait came in handy because I could go through two garbage cans in the middle of the night with a flashlight in my mouth. And he was proud of that. I hated not, I really did not want to tell him that he could go to a local industrial supply store and buy a miner's helmet. But the, when I remember the times I was slap happy, just kissing her. You know, walk in, have you been drinking? No, oh, really, I am. You know, the sniff and kiss step. Man, I got more buzz just sniffing and kissing. Nothing was working. None of that stuff was working. I threatened to leave finally. I said, I can leave. Friends of mine were telling me, geez, you're going down the eddy. You're not hanging with us. You're embarrassed. Uh, what's going on? Just Why do you stay with us? You don't have kids. Just leave. So one day I walked up to her. I said, you know, I'm done with you. I'm leaving. So I put my stuff in that little polka-dotted cloth, like porky pig, and I got my stick, and I'm walking out. And she said, if you leave, I will commit suicide. I said, that I want to watch. So you don't botch it up. I don't know what happened from the exit door to the kitchen, which is only 15 nanoseconds in that little condo. Her intentions changed from suicide to homicide. And all of a sudden, I'm standing 15 feet away, and she's in the kitchen, and I'm thinking she's going to pull out a knife and go for her jugular or something. Instead, dishes come flying at me at 90 miles an hour. This woman could have been a major league pitcher. And this idiot does not want his neighbors to find out that he's got a drunk in the house or not. What kind of thinking is that? I mean, why, first of all, why do alcoholics become anonymous after they stop drinking? 
I'm in for an image management guy. If you stay anonymous while you're drinking, I don't have a problem. You can stay in a dark, dank, dirty room, get drunk, pass out, die. I don't care. But when you make my life miserable, when people look at me and say, look at this idiot with a drunk, I got a problem. Then I got to get involved and find ways to get you sober, even though I did not know the meaning of the word sobriety. All I knew was it was two glasses of white wine, specifically Chardonnay. So if you just drink two glasses of Chardonnay, that's your limit. What an idiot. You know, you don't tell an alcoholic what to drink, when to drink, how to drink, with whom to drink. So I came up to her, I said, this is the end of the road. What do we do? She said, I said, you really have a drinking problem. She said, no, I don't. We have a marriage problem. I'm Polish Catholic and you're not. It's a profound observation. I've never thought of that. I used to be a cynical bastard. I'm a little less of a cynical. How long has ruined that? You know, you don't have that. Because it's, say, ah, how going on? So anyway, <laughs> I said, next pre-Alman phrase, I'll take care of it. So I called up this guy and educated him about the condition that my wife is in for about half an hour. I said, I'm going to bring this woman with me. You shackle her to whatever bed you want to shackle her to, pour whatever stuff you pour down her throat, and abuse someone talked about yesterday, and then you take care of it. But we're going to come under the guise of a marriage problem. So we strolled down to see this guy, and this moron, I don't think, listened to a word of what I told him on the phone. He looks at us rather ponderously and says, so, what's the problem? And you don't ask this moron what, when, where, why, because anything that starts with a what, where, when, why, my brain shut up and my reflexes took over and I say, my wife drinks too much. You say, what time is it? What? My wife drinks too much. How do I get from point of how? My wife drinks too much. When will it? When? My wife drinks too much. And he said, how? I didn't hear the rest of the sentence. I said, my wife drinks too much. So she's crying. He's making notes to make a long story short. He lets us go. And she finds the second counselor. So we go see the second guy who's been to school with the first guy. That they so... What's the problem? I said, my wife drinks too much. She said, so, what's the problem? And I thought he had my accent. So I spoke louder and slower. Why do we think that people who don't understand you will understand you if, you, if they you think they're deaf and dumb? You know, so it's louder. She is drinking. And I'm trying to do charades. So then he says, so, what's the problem with that? Meaning, what's the problem with that? And I swear to you, if you shut the lights off in the room, his nose shone so red. He could have served as a beacon on a dark ocean guiding ships. I mean, this man, I looked at my wife and said, oh my God, he's one of you. And she said, oh, he understands. I said, of course. You know, he understands. And we went to him about three times and he stopped understanding. He disappeared. Once again, I was right. See, that was the other thing I had to have is I had to prove myself right to her because she was a drunk and I wasn't. She was a problem in my life and I was going to straighten it out. Well, the marriage counseling didn't work. Dragging her here and there did not work. Final thing that hit me was homicide. I was going to kill her. Now, see, I'm from the land of Gandhi, right? Non-violence. You starve yourself to death to let the other person leave. One comedian said that would not have happened if Gandhi were in Italy. Italian food is too much of a temptation. So I'm reading. This is really wild that I even thought of this. I'm reading this English magazine called Argosy. And that Arthur Hitchcock had described the perfect murder weapon. I see a few people kind of sitting straight to listen. But you won't get it here unless you go to the mountain. And he, he said, it's the icicle. If you kill a person with an icicle, the icicle disappears. You cannot hide it in the ocean. So on the top of mountains, it just disappears. I said, it's February, Warren, Michigan, nice icicles outside. I'm going to take one, kill her. This is all happening in nanoseconds. I'll go to the basement, dig it up. I know nothing about masonry, but details. Who cares? I'm going to pour fresh cement, operation successful, patient dies peacefully, my life will be blissful. Then a thought came into my head, but what about your mother-in-law? She lives a mile and a half away. 
she'll find dust on her your wife's car and she'll call the police. And then another thought came in and said, you did not come to the United States to befriend some guy named Bubba in a Michigan prison. Being traded for cigarettes was not an option. Six packs of this guy, the idiot who killed his wife, why she drank too much. Oh, make it 12, he's a real moron. You know, I shared this at my meeting in Irvine many years ago, and a lady came up to me and said, oh, thank you so much for sharing this. I've been so guilty because I was going to kill my husband. I said, what happened? He said, she said, he was lying on the couch, and, I was, and he was passed out. I was going to take a pillow and snuff him out. And I said, why did you not do it? Thinking she'll say, oh, God, it's the wrong thing to kill someone. It's heinous and, you know, against God's laws and all that sort of good stuff. Instead, she said, oh, they would have found cotton in his nose, and they would have known I've done it. She was more worried about herself as... So finally, the twins came to my rescue. And I'm not talking about the Norwegian bobsled team. I'm talking about Enlanders and Dear Abby. I still occasionally read them. Um, beautiful people. <laughs> a man, oh, I'm actually Alamon. I've got such a well-developed female side. I don't date anyone anymore. I date myself. <laughs> At least I talk to myself. And I listen. So here I'm reading. Man of the 80s in those days. And I'm reading uh, the uh, Enlanders column. And it says, if your husband or mother or child or whatever or Go to Al-Anon. I said, finally, 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 someone's going to show me how to get this twist sober. That was my favorite phrase for private twist. So I got my first meeting. Well, it is this, but my perceptions are wrong. I thought the room was dark and dingy, and there were six women in there, average age deceased. Six dead women. I said, what the hell am I doing here? I walk up to the deadest of them all, and they're beautiful people. They're about as old as I am now. But to me, it's just miserable. I walk in, and I look at the woman who seemed to be the head hen, and I said, uh, how does this thing work? And she recoiled, I can remember that, just kind of stepped back, had this real scared look in her eye, and she pointed me to a literature table. She said, go there, and there's a pamphlet. Pick it up and read it. And she pointed the color of the pamphlet. And I went and picked up the pamphlet, and I thought at the top was what I thought was the escape clause. It said, these steps are taken from Alcoholics Anonymous. We changed one word in the 12th step. We changed the word alcoholics to others. So I thought some steps apply to me, some don't. I'm going to start taking them now. Step 13, she'll get sober. Now I know what step 13 is. I didn't know at that time. Thank God for those deceased women. But <laughs> I'm teaching the beautiful people. But anyway, so I read the first step. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. I said, I'm not powerless over alcohol. Shy of this intense desire to wear a you know, lampshade and be a, a part of the, I mean, be a, the center of the party. And my life isn't unmanageable. Now, that was being like King Cleopatra, King of the Nile. Everything in my life is manageable. People don't avoid their friends, don't stay away from their family, don't perform poorly at their jobs that they've just gotten. I'm not just totally angry walking around blaming the world around them. You're not screaming at the people driving in front of them or yelling at the people behind them or trying to drive the car next to us. want to drive four cars at the same time. But my life wasn't unmanageable. So I came to step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I said, I'm the same one. She's the insane one. Does not apply. Move on. Step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I said, you know, if God's given it to us in the first place, why give it back to him? That would make God an anyone. I mean, <laughs> any Native Americans, I'm just teasing. It's my thing to say when you're in India. Anyway, number four, <laughs> made a searching. I'm politically incorrect. No, I don't want to be Bill Maher. Anyway. Step four, came to, uh, took a fearless and personal moral inventory of myself. I found myself to be perfect. Move on. Five, admitted to God to another human being, the exact, ah, I said that's against the credo of image management. If something was wrong, which there's nothing wrong, I was not going to tell you. 
And if God didn't know, who cares? So step five did not apply. Move on to step six and seven. Glossed over because there's no defects of character to line up, no humility of any measure to be talking to God about removing anything that wasn't there to be removed in the first place. So I moved on to step eight. Made a list of persons I had harmed. They deserved it. Moved on. Step nine. I took my 12 steps in three and a half minutes. And I walked up to the lady. This is real insane. I walked up and I said, now what? I'm spiritually awakened. I got my gossamer wings. I'm leaving. And she said, I said, now what? She said, keep coming back. Man, I thought Moon Unit Sapphire had used that as inspiration when she wrote, gag me with a spoon. And I said, why? Because she said, you're sick. And she almost spat the word out. And I said, I'm not sick. I've got a sick one at home. She said, no, you don't know. You better keep coming back. I said, okay. So I did. Every six weeks, I'd go back. <laughs> now, embarking on a program that's literally going to get to the core of my psyche, right? It's going to change the way I perceive life. I perceive life as a victim. It's going to change it to saying, Ajit, you create your own reality by the way you respond to situations and by the way you think because you manifest that reality. That's what this program is doing to me. It's going to go into the core of my psyche. It's going to just turn that screw just enough to say, we're going to change your perceptions, which is going to change your attitudes, which is going to change your beliefs, which is going to change the way you behave, and which is going to change the person you're going to become finally, eventually, and progress towards becoming. But you're going to do this once every six weeks? No way. I was fixated on this word disease. See, this Alamon really messed me up initially, because you don't tell a pseudo intellectual like myself that it's a disease like cancer or a disease like diabetes because you're fixated on the physiological definitions of disease if you're like me. So I'm sitting there and saying, wait a minute. My mind has now broken up into 16,000 thought patterns. I've got thoughts and anti-thoughts and epsilon thoughts and thoughts just flying around. Personalities coming arguing with themselves that she has a disease like cancer, so you can't leave her. And another thought says, wait a minute. If she's got cancer, why isn't she seeking chemotherapy? Another one says, like diabetes, why is she seeking insulin therapy? So all this fight's going on. I'm struggling with this concept called disease. I don't know what it means. And a year or so later, I get transferred to Chicago. In the meanwhile, I'm not casting aspersions at treatment centers. We did get her into a treatment center. The seed was planted, but the sobriety did not happen. So I go to my first Alamon meeting, and please, I'm not suggesting you do this in your Alamon meeting here. I was chastised at another conference by even suggesting it, but this is my story. This is what they did to me. I walk into my first Alamon meeting in Chicago, in Schaumburg, Illinois, and, they, and I started to question this disease thing, and a, new, and a guy walked up to the literature table, picked up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and walked up to me and said, this is a text on alcoholism. Once you read this, you'll understand what this disease is all about. And I started reading it, and I understood now that this disease went beyond the limitations of physiological and physical definitions of disease and into the spiritual and mental and emotional ends of disease, disease that I did not have any comprehension of. Forget me, she did not. This woman who could walk up a flight of stairs, fall down, crack her ribs, and six weeks later repeat the thing as if it had never happened before, was indeed under the grips of a disease. I heard an uh, AA speaker from uh, Los Angeles, he's dead now, say, put it beautifully, I wish I had heard it then. He said, alcoholism is like making love to a gorilla. You ain't done with it till the gorilla's done with it. That's an extremely stark representation of this disease. I started going to this meeting now three times a week instead of once every six weeks. And something was gaining foot. I was starting to read literature. I was starting to understand what was going on a little bit. But see, my program for the last 17, 18 years has been stuck in these 55 inches right here. 8 to 10 inches, I know. And just because I read it, I think I'm living it. But I'm not. I was living a lie. 1980, I start the program. 1983, I'm seriously getting into it. But it's still very conceptual, still intellectual. It's still thought rather than action. It's not in the soul area. It's just stripping very slowly. And I'll tell you when it happened. 
Here I am going to these meetings and they teach me the concept of detachment. They said detachment is simply understanding the difference being responsible to and being responsible for. And so I said, okay, I understand that. I'm going to practice it. And so I have my wife supposed to pick me up at the airport. I'm flying into Minnesota. She takes that one drink that are too many and slides off, slides off the road. And the Chicago cops are not too happy when she gets into a fight with them. They bop her on the head and take her to jail. And she calls me from jail the next morning, come bail me out. I said, I am detached. Now I walked into my Al-Anon meeting that evening and they said, what gives? You can barely fit through the door, this wide door. I said, I am detached. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, my wife's arrested for drinking and driving. I will not bail her out. And they said, go bail her out. I said, why? Because they said they'll send her to Cook County Jail and you don't want to send your worst enemy. My wife's about three degrees shy of that, so I bailed her out. And I used a weapon that I'd used very often, cognizant of it, but that what I was doing until I read the definition of it in the one day at a time. I beat her up with sarcasm. I was never violent physically, but I wish for her sake that I'd been physically violent instead of verbally violent. My, I had the command of the language, I had the cynicism in me, and I had the anger in me, and I could tear her down one side and poke holes into the system that was so far damaging, that, I mean, damaging in, in, in such a way that, you know, physical damage would not have done that kind of harm that I did. And I just went on the barrage, just beating her up with my tongue. And I didn't know what I was doing. You see, I made amends for that. And that's the reason why the, the, the cynicism has abated and the sarcasm has, has uh, been quietened in so many ways. It's gentleness, more self-deprecating rather than directed at you. And so here I go to my meetings and I bailed her out. And this is where detachment finally was starting to take hold. She said, find me an attorney. I said, no, I'm responsible to you. So I'll pay for the attorney because you don't have a job and it's our common finances. But I'm not responsible for your actions, therefore you must find your own attorney. She said, take, stand in front of me, stand with me in front of the judge. And I said, I'm responsible. And I tell you, I swear, every fiber in my being wanted to go plead her case for her. I knew nothing about law, but who cares? I was going to stand in front of the judge and tell her how sorry she was, even if she weren't and how this is not something that was happening regularly, although it was happening, or lie for her, but I had to intellectually stop that visceral feeling of wanting to be a caretaker, and Allah her taught me that, says, give them the dignity of falling on their ears and getting up and dusting themselves. Don't do for them that which they can do for themselves despite the alcohol. I didn't know that. And so finally, because the intellectual force of will I was using, she had to find her own attorney, she had to wait in front of the, stand in front of the judge herself, and it was a healing thing for her because Eventually, about a year or so later, she found sobriety, but she, my wife one day said, what is it about your alcoholics? You give up booze, then it's obsession with cigarettes, and that's given up, then it's obsession with sugar, and that's given up, then it's exercise, and your obsession keeps moving on from substance to activity to substance. And she said, isn't that wonderful? Your obsession has moved right along, and you observe it. <laughs> See, my problem is not your drinking. My problem is my obsession over your drinking. You know, I can go out with a very beautiful woman on a date, She'll be sitting across from me. She may be the most, I mean, the most gorgeous creature in the world, but God help her if she's got a piece of lettuce stuck between her teeth. Because everything ceases to exist except that piece of lettuce. I want to take a toothpick and scrape it off, or, you know, take dental gloss or spray, fits it. I'm exaggerating, but the alcoholic stops being an individual. She stopped being a woman. She stopped being the artist that she was. She stopped being the intellectual and intelligent conversations that she was. All she became was a big brown bottle of booze or whatever she was drinking at the time. Everything ceased to exist. She was a great cook, but that didn't matter. All I saw was this drunk, and I, was, I loathed her. I didn't like her. I hated what she was doing to herself and to us 
And I didn't realize that I had a solution to this. And that my, my, you know, I love what the lady from Texas says back. She says, every time I get my ducks in a row, they're telling me they're not my ducks. And so alcohol really wasn't my problem. And it became extremely evident when she found sobriety. First year of sobriety in AA, I'm obsessing now over other areas of her life. I'm starting to obsess over what she wears. I've never, ever looked at what my wife wore. I'm obsessing over eating because, see, her bulimia now came to surface. So instead of listening to the sound of opening cans, I'm listening to the sound of flushing cans. And I'm really ticked off. $100 dinner, there it goes. Oh, man. That's the sickness. I'm just focused there. And then I'm obsessing over her spending because my wife thought that shopping is a religious experience. I think most women do, I suppose. And she had a lot of places of religious, uh, what you call, uh, pursuit that she went to. I Magnus, Ross, you name it. And I was really just spending my money. It was our money. But my obsession, I walked up to my sponsor and said, what gives? She's sober and I'm going nuts. I'm still obsessing. He said, that's our problem. It's not the booze. And that's when it struck me that I have a quality where my personality tends to obsess. I want to drive four cars on the freeway and the four or five. The idiot in front of me is only doing 95. I want to do 100. The moron behind me wants to ride in my backseat because he wants to do 105. And there's a third guy in my blind spot that won't let me pass the guy in the front. So I want to drive four cars at the same time. Now, if that's not crazy, I don't know what is. And I'm thinking she's the problem. She isn't the problem. I had options. I had choices. And I didn't recognize that. So now I'm starting to work the steps as they suggested. And I'm working my fourth step with a bunch of areas, a four-column thing, and I'm thinking I'm healing. Two years into our sobriety, into her sobriety, I'm still insane mentally, except I can put on this. We have children. Uh, immaculately conceived, of course. There's a star that appears in the east. And two more fallen. I have 16-year-old twins now, and a 14 and a 10-year-old. But twins show up. I started a new business. We bought a new home in, in Irvine, California. We've just moved from Chicago. Uh, two years later, we've uh, put, put together some cash to buy this home. The ticker shock, and everything is falling. It's going by the wayside. My first year in business is phenomenal. I discovered that my partner has alcoholic tendencies. He's a womanizer. And they, naturally, I'm attracting the right kind of person in my life. I'm still seeking serenity. So I go and find myself literally... Something is not right. I'm paying occasionally my mortgage with my credit cards. My wife has chosen to stay home because of the kids, and I'm having problems at the office. So I get on my knees, and I reach into the, uh, my wife's uh, shelf, bookshelf, and I pull out this book. I close my eyes, or whatever book jumps out, because she has 16,000 books on spirituality and all that good stuff. And what jumps out in my hands, again, is, again, is, a, is a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I close my eyes and I say, God, just give me some direction. I close my eyes and I open it up and it opens up on step three. And a little voice came and said, you know, you've really never surrendered. You've never truly surrendered. I still have in my gutter guts, I know that that has not happened completely to the level I imagined it ought to be. I don't know. It's just that I have not surrendered. I have not let go. And Mildred uh, said a wonderful story to me that I will share with you in a second. But it's like Mike Tyson just came out of Indiana prison. I said, I'm merely submitted. I'm still trying to control the show, show. I'm still indulging in machinations. I looked at my life that I've not been honest in my relationships. I've not been loyal to my friendships. I've been talk, walk, talking the talk, but I have not walked the walk. I come into these rooms. I've got people who sponsor. I have a sponsor, and I'm sponsoring guys. I can articulate concepts quite well, so people actually think I'm working the damn program, and I'm not. And I realized in those eight or ten years that I've been in the program that I hit a wall. 
I found out that I was going to meetings and the only profound thing I heard was that which was coming out of my mouth. That is a very scary place. I walked up to my sponsor and I said, I'm dropping out. I've been a liar, I've been a hypocrite. I don't know what I'm doing in this program, but I've been lying and cheating because people even know I'm lying and cheating because of the way I've conducted myself. And I don't know where the sponsor got his logic, but he said, Ajit, if you had not been working the program, you would not have come to this realization. I have no idea again with this screwed up logic. And I said, for the first time, I said, help me, what do I do? And he said, what I would like you to do if you're really asking for directions. See, unlike sponsors in AA, I think most sponsors in Al-Anon kind of take a very detached approach to sponsorship. And he said, what I would do is I would start at the beginning again. I said, how do I start at the beginning? He said, go read about the first step first. Go read it from every angle you can. The big book, little book, green book, blue book, white book, whatever book, read it. And then write on the first step as it applies to you. Just don't stand up and then say, I'm powerless over people, places, and institutions, unless you actually believe that you are powerless over a particular circumstance or you're powerless over a particular individual. 